Welcome to episode six of Earned Media Rising, the podcast powered by Cision and brought to you by PR Week. I'm Gideon Fiddles, I'm managing editor of PR Week, and I'll be your host for this episode focused on how paid, earned, and owned can benefit each other in times of crisis. Previous episodes of this podcast featuring Olson's Brian Specht, Heineken's Tara Rush, Cision's Chris Lynch, Southwest Airlines' Linda Rutherford, Univision's Rosemary Mercedes, and so many more incredible comms leaders are available online at earnedmediarising.com and also available on iTunes and SoundCloud. But we have two tremendous guests today as well. I'm joined today by Michelle Moore, CCO at the ACLU, and Janine Liburd, Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for BET Networks. Thank you both for joining me today. It's great Thank to be you. here. Thank you. Thanks. And I know our audience is ready to get to the content, so let's get right to it. My first question for you guys is this. What are paid, earned, and owned media strengths in handling a crisis? Also, what are the weaknesses? Janine, I'll start with you. Okay. Um, well, you know, I think the, the biggest strength is your audience. Um, first and foremost, I think now in a social media world, you're in a direct conversation with your audience at all times. So back back in the day when you would have to write out a fax and then put it on the fax and then send it out to the press and then they would communicate it, all of that has been cut immediately. And typically what happens is we'll find our audience asking us questions even before we're ready to respond is typically what happens. So we always find our first strength is our audience going to them directly. And usually our first mover is a tweet um, or a direct uh, tweet from one of our executives sometimes to speak directly to the audience and get the conversation going immediately. Mm -hmm. I'd agree. You know, I think what's really important is that if you're having a conversation with your audience and you already have credibility with them, you're able to kind of shape the media narrative when it turns to earned media. And that's incredibly important because so many journalists are on social. And so I think what's really, really important is that you start with your own audience, ensure that you have that level of both credibility and uh, authenticity with them. And then you're also being able to kind of read what the responses are. And that's, again, going to shape your narrative with earned media. Um, I think the strength in the earned media space is if you have great relationships with reporters and journalists who have a relationship with you, who know the background in the organization, who know your leaders, then you can provide things on background and context and be able to provide kind of a, a, a third-party validation that is really going to help you in the public space. So both of those things, I think, are strengths, your owned media context as well as your earned media opportunities. Would you care to chime in a little bit on what some common weaknesses are when people plan to use their social media channels in times of a crisis? You know, not really having a sense of if you've established really smart social media um, practices within your employee base. Mm -hmm. um, also kind of understanding what critics you have out there who may be already on social if you're not ready, re ready to prepare, ready to respond. Um, really making sure that you're, whether you're trending or you're not, if you're really paying attention to what the challenges are. So really having a tight ship mm -hmm. in terms of your own communique, uh, then monitoring, and then being able to respond you know, in, in a quick time. I, I think the, the downside of third-party media is, you know, is third-party validation, but the other challenge is if the, the story is not shaped right and it doesn't go well, then you're on you know, a cleanup process, which makes it even more difficult, and you've kind of dug yourself in a bigger hole. So that's the downside of, of third-party media uh, and the downside of social media. I would just add one thing to the social pieces. Typically what happens is one crisis then leads you to something else. Um, and once you start that dialogue and you start that conversation, you can't just say, okay, I'm done, I've answered my question, and now right. I'm out. Um, once you start a conversation, and most 
uh, controversies these days have several layers to them. So you'll have the first layer, whatever was the first thing, um, and then once you dig deep, it, you've now opened up this vault of questions. And so now you have to figure out, am I gonna stay in here? Am I gonna answer every single uh, you know, question about whatever this topic is? And so that can be a weakness of it because you, you don't allow, you're not allowed to then just say your piece and then get out of it. I also welcome anyone out there to go on Google and look what a fax is, because I'm not sure everyone actually <laughs> that knows what that true. means. This that is, is true. true. Um, um, no one I'm, on my team would know. Uh, unfortunately, I do know what a fax <laughs> machine is. Um, I think it's a thing I throw at people when I'm mad at somebody. But anyway, on to the next question. Uh, how do you determine the best mix of advertising, PR, and marketing during these times? Michelle, I started with Janine in the last question. I'll start with you on this one. You know, it just depends on what type of crisis that you have, I think. Um, you know, is it a business-to-business -business crisis where you really have a very select, small audience of influencers that you're trying to connect to? Uh, what you're trying to not do is make sure that's out in the public sphere too much, and you don't want to, in your response, elevate your own crisis when you're really dealing. It's a, a contract issue. It might be something that's very particular to your industry, so mm -hmm. you want to keep it small if you can. If it's a, a public crisis, if you're a... a um, uh, a consumer-based company, obviously, uh, the the mix is going to be very different. You have to be on your own own uh, channels. You have first, and then you have to deal with uh, earned media second. But you know, I think you want to temper the response relative to and, and tailor it relative to the type of crisis you have. You know, is this an issue where you have to get your CEO out in front because he's talking to a number of investors, mm -hmm. or is it a situation or she, or if it's a cir circumstance where um, you know you have the F FDA, you have a, a food crisis, then that's a completely different kind of setup. Mixes that you're going to need. Thank you. Only thing I would add to that, and this is more of a general statement, is that I find that it could be the function of my job and me personally, but PR and marketing has now, to me, completely blurred the line. So when I think of that, I think of the two almost simultaneously working in tandem together at this point, um, just in terms of the actual vehicle that we're using to get the message out, and then actually the words that we're saying. And sometimes it's not a word, it's an image. So many times we'll think of, well, we should really respond to this with an image, um, and of course the appropriate hashtag to follow, but you're thinking about things in a completely different way than you would before, and because of those two things, I would say kind of PR and marketing first, because you have to develop that message and how you want to socialize it, and then once you get it out there, um, we often find that using paid social to amplify whatever message we've put out is a, a constructive way to go about it. Terrific. Thank you for that. Um, the next topic I'm going to bring up with you, I actually... We've touched on it a little bit already, I believe, but I welcome you both to actually bring some personal, and I don't mean personal, I mean business, <laughs> business examples. Personally professional. Thank you. I, see, I knew you should have been sitting in this chair. <laughs> anyway, but seriously, what are the considerations of how you frame what the messaging looks like to the public during a crisis? And again, you probably need to answer that more from a personal professional angle. So um, Janine, I'll start with you. Um, you know, again, I, I know we keep saying it depends, but I think that that's the most important thing to realize is there's never a cookie cutter um, approach to how you deal with um, crises. And typically what I find is sometimes we'll have a almost like a third party crisis. Like so, for example, our recent one was someone brought an idea to us um, and then they were, then another third party said to them, oh, that wasn't their idea. Um, it was, you know, BT's wrong and this person is wrong and everybody's wrong. Um, so the first, which I hear that often, um, the first thing always is, you know, finding out what the facts are. Mm -hmm. Of course, we find the facts, what the facts are. And then when we look to frame it, we really frame it from the audience perspective. Sometimes we have to take 
our selves and kind of that part of the ego and all of those things out of it and kind of go, well, why, why would the audience believe this to be true? Um, and then instead kind of back into it and say, okay, let's frame this as what do they want to hear? What is the fact that they're really getting at? And then frame it at it this way. So the first thing was to, in this particular instance, to say this show is coming to you. It was brought to us by this point. And sometimes just by giving, this is what you want to know, here's what the fact is, and then it kind of, kind of went away. Thank you. You know, being at the ACLU uh, 2016, November 9th, became an American crisis, right? So, um, you know, President Trump was elected, everyone expected uh, Hillary Clinton to be elected. And so, fortunately, we were kind of prepared at the ACLU, not um, just in terms of what he had said on the campaign trail, and if he were to carry out some of the things that he had said on the campaign trail, uh, what that meant from a policy perspective and what threat that would mean on civil liberties. Part of the opportunity for us in defining the message frame for us was really to think about who did we want to be in the room? Uh, what was the unique perspective that the ACLU brought to the conversation? Because there were going to be lots of folks, whether they were progressives, conservatives, and others, who were going to be resistant to Trump, and others who were going to be pro-Trump. You know, part of the challenge for us was we could join the course, or we could kind of be the big grown-ups in the room, be the referee, and really talk about, you know, what were the facts, uh, what were the, the challenges. So part of our message framing in that particular situation was to show some discipline, frankly. You know, we wanted to make sure that when we communicated with our affiliates and when we spoke on the record about, at that time, candidate Trump, then President-elect Trump, part of the challenge was to ensure that we always talked about the substance of what he proposed, not him personally. It was easy to, you know, make the per personal characterizations based on what he may have said, but really just stick to the facts. Um, and people relied on our credibility. It's, it's so we really wanted to ensure that we had this message that was really felt from a tonality standpoint, defiant, but not mad or angry. And that was really something that um, was uh, important for us throughout the entire process. And hey, we have very passionate folks in our organization who really want to jump at it and jump at it quick. And it was really showing some discipline. And getting everybody on the page and same page and really getting them to understand that if we held our gunpowder just a little and maintained a framework of, of substance, uh, not just passion, that ultimately in the long term, people would understand who we were in the fray and then really be able to rely on us when it really came down to pushing back against the administration on some of the things that he was doing. That actually reminded me, if I can jump in, on one a better, a much better example of, um, because we constantly get into this, you know, what do we say? Like even today, people are like, well, what are you going to do about, you know, the comments made today? Um, and we're always fighting with this, we can't get into this like everyday vitriol thing about how we're going to go back and forth. But on one particular moment after the tiki torch moment mm -hmm. um, and the violence that ensued around right after that, we really did feel like we wanted to say something, but we really went back and forth around how as you know, black entertainment television do we approach this in a way that embraces our audience. And we came up with something um, called the Black Love Movement. And we, instead of kind of leaning into the hate, we just leaned into the love of it all. And then instead of focusing on that, and we got all of our employees together and they all donned these Black Love um, Movement t-shirts um, that we actually were focused on a totally different thing, but we just recalibrated and we're like, this is the moment, this is what we wanna do. And it started a whole, a whole thing in that moment and really helped change, at least in our orbit, the conversation um, from how can we just love each other up and build each other up as opposed to going down this, you know, hole of hell. 
Thank you, Michelle and Janine. That's the end of part one. But please stay around with us for part two, where we will discuss rules for the public versus private sector. And Michelle and Janine will offer some best advice on which department takes the lead during a crisis. Welcome back to part two. Before we hear more from our guests, Michelle Moore from the ACLU and Janine Leibert from, from BET Networks, um, I advise you all to check out earnedmediarising.com, which aligns with the themes on this podcast. And of course, we're here today in New York City, which you can probably tell from some of the sirens in the background, recording with our two esteemed guests. So let's get back to the discussion. When managing a crisis, how do you determine which department takes the lead? Communications, marketing, advertising, and yeah, perhaps the person with the chief marketing communications <laughs> officer is the right person to start with. So Janine, you're on the spot. Yeah, well, you know, it's always the one who gets the call, right? So um, I would say my role um, uh, separated from this is communications is the first um, stop because I think the communications uh, people typically are coming at it from a business first perspective they're really looking at and are used to looking at all of the perspectives all at once. So they're looking at the audience, they're looking at executives, they understand the sales perspective, and they understand how marketing can be a strong tool. Um, and I think from a communications per, um, perspective also, you always have that intel that sometimes all the other departments don't have. Like what is my executive's kind of opinion as to what um, happen? What is uh, potential issues that our board could have as it relates to these specific issues? So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go with, I'm going to say communications for 200. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> That's not fair because you know the answer is the same, right? Um, absolutely. I mean, communications, we're the you know, folks in the room that really understand we're advisors and counselors, but also really understand the, the broad perspective as, as Janine uh, so eloquently said. Uh, the other piece is that uh, we talked a little bit earlier about how marketing and communications um, really are so, so melded together that one kind of reinforces the other. Mm -hmm. And so uh, communications is there, but then marketing is right thereafter because when you're dealing with your own own media channels on social and what have you, you're doing the advertising and marketing to push your messages out. Uh, so you're watching the trends on social, you're trying to manage all that process, and when things in your message is going well, you want to put additional money and in, in, in space between Google Ads or what have you, or Facebook or what have you. So you want to be able to push out your messages. And so communications is first, but marketing is a close second, and it's uh, becoming clear that um, you know we have a president that really understands marketing and communications. He really understands how talking directly to his audience, really not paying attention to anybody else, is the way in which he wins. And so um, unfortunately, I think the media didn't find, fr frankly understand that. Uh, the point that he came from New York, I don't think the media took him seriously um, because the national media is based in New York, and then he got so far ahead that people quite didn't understand what hit them. So, you know, controlling your own message, um, he has really shown that he's really unfortunately very expert at it, and uh, it's for us to really catch up and understand how we cultivate some of those practices in a good way so that, um, you know, our messages get out there. You really are an adult. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. That was that was that was, that was very impressive. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure President Trump will get word of that or a wind of that. Please, please, <laughs> tweet my name. Tweet my name. Um, on, on to the next topic, though. Um, are the rules different for public versus the private sector? And also the same are the rules different for profit versus nonprofit? Michelle, I'll start with you. 
You know, uh, for nonprofits, you know, we were never going to have a major advertising budget. I mean, this it's one, it's not something that our supporters and followers expect us to have. Mm -hmm. And so we live and breathe by both earned media and controlled media, owned media on our own on spaces. Um, there is no way in the world that we're ever going to be able to have multi-million dollar budgets um, at, like corporate entities have to kind of reaffirm uh, who they are in the marketplace. So we really, really rely on it. I think ultimately for nonprofits, you have to ensure that you maintain that level of authenticity, that you're speaking on the issues that you have credibility already in. Um, you know, there was a, something that happened like a few months ago at the ACLU where um, the president said something about climate change. Uh, and uh, our advocacy team wanted to speak out on it. Well, the ACLU, frankly, doesn't work on climate change. So um, if we speak out on it, then do we have the substance to support uh, the argument and, and the message? And in that case, you know, it was one tweet, but there weren't successive tweets because ultimately we don't, we don't serve. However, in circumstances where uh, we have a real strong um, uh, background, the Muslim ban, for example, would be something where we do immigration law cases every day. And so that's something that's bread and butter for us and something that we have a lot of credibility on, a lot of authenticity on, we can speak with a lot of power on. So um, I think that's what we have to do. We have to use third-party media and we have to use our own channels to get our message out. And the advantage we have is, is that we do have members and supporters. I mean, to some extent, um, uh, most commercial uh, entities know who, they're, th th who they've sold pr um, products to. Uh, but we have ongoing monthly members, so we're talking 1.7 million ACLU members. We know who they are, and then we know we have another 3 or 4 million on social. So we have a pretty captive audience. Mm -hmm. So we know who we're talking to and, and you know our relationship with them, what they expect of us. So um, our owned media spaces are pretty controllable for us, which is a great way. Um, of course, we're also a free speech organization, so we always get those trollers and detractors, and that's what makes it fun. I would add to that. Um what has been interesting is over, particularly over my time at, at BET Networks, is how we have worked closely with the not-for-profit sector sometimes to solve some of our issues and crises. Um, I, I started my career at BET Networks where we were being um, protested upon, um, and Deb Lee, the chairman and CEO specifically, was being protested. Um, and what became immediately clear was that we needed to make sure that we connected with our partners and friends and made sure that we understand what the National Urban League thought of BET and what did that relationship look like. And so that taught me early on in my, in my time um, how you respond to a crisis sometimes is how, who are your friends and how, who can you bring into under the tent um, to help you answer some critical questions about yourself. Um, if you really are looking to make a change because sometimes when you're in a crisis there is a hint of some truth to that that you need to reflect upon. So in those instances sometimes that's where the two can work together. Before we move on, I, I really want to echo what Janine has said and the importance for communications uh, professionals to really urge their CEOs to have both relationships, uh, both with nonprofits, and a real understanding of what's happening in the social zeitgeist. Because at the end of the day, employers are going to expect you to speak out on some issues sometimes that may be completely out of your field. But so, for example, I was recently uh, talking to a pharmaceutical company and they were asking me, you know, we when the immigration ban hit, we had a lot of employees who wanted to understand what was the, the organization's position on the immigration ban because it was a global company. And they were concerned about their colleagues, their allies, and what did the CEO have to say. And they really hadn't considered themselves as part of the fray because they were a pharmaceutical company. 
And so, you know, having those relationships with nonprofits, experts in the, whether they're policy folks or other nonprofits that work in the space, those allies are really important. If they aren't necessarily public, they may be great in terms of advice and counsel on these kind of critical issues because there is a melt for employees around social things that they care about and how, what their, their company represents in this field. Excellent, thank you so much. Um, our final topic of the day will be me asking you about what are some of the best case practices that you have witnessed either within your organization or outside. Obviously, we're talking about handling of a crisis. Um, again, I think you guys have both shown that at your own companies, you guys have this nailed pretty well. So um, if you have some examples from outside your companies of crises that you felt were handled quite expertly, I would welcome that. Um, Janine, I'll start with you. Sure. Gosh, there's so, I feel like you think of, I, I, I'll rephrase the question. I think there's so many crises that you see only part of it, right? So you mm -hmm. see the Pepsi can and then what happens from there. You see the American Airlines or the, you know, the, the H&M most recently mm -hmm. that that happened you know uh, pretty re recently and you don't always get the how was it resolved I feel like sometimes you think it you think it was resolved from a social media perspective because you'll see the audience basically handling it and responding for themselves um, but that said I would say um, I'll focus on the H&M one. Um, I think they could have, I don't know if this might be the best practice, but I thought what was interesting was that they encouraged the mother of the young boy to respond. And I think sometimes the most important thing is, now it wouldn't have been the response I would have made, I will say that, mm -hmm. but I think that from a corporate perspective, it's important for the corporation to say, yeah, I might have made the wrong decision, but let me also make sure I have all the actors in here be part of the conversation. So I think part of, well, again, I do not agree with what they did and their, I think they could have gone further in their um, response and handling it, but I think one of the tactics in there of making sure that you make sure that the people who are involved in whatever the crisis is also take an active role in communicating their perspective. I, I very much pre I very much appreciate that. That's very good, um, Michelle. You know, some of the the practices are go old school. You know, first of all, have a plan. Hmm. You know, um, we have young people in our and uh, I'm I'm seasoned, not young. <laughs> um, you know, in our business that you know really don't necessarily know the nuances and skills of at, an actual rapid response plan. So not only have one, but practice it and understand and communicate it with your team about you know. Who's on first? Who's on second? Who's going to talk? Who's your key spokesperson? Some of those things are really not ironed out in advance. And then when you're in a crisis, everybody's expected to kind of fall in line. And oftentimes, because we have both employees, executives who have their own social channels, it's, you know, who's on first is an incredible part of understanding how you're going to respond to something quickly. Um, so some of those plan that planning process, sometimes we're so often thinking about, you know, how we're going to get our brand out there, how we're going to attract new audiences. We don't do take the time to actually just do the nuts and bolts of preparing for crisis hmm. um, sec and, and training for crisis um, and then identifying a crisis. You know, what is, what is the level of crisis? Is this something that's internalized because employees have a certain point of view, but you're actually talking to yourselves and externally it's not a big deal or they've moved on? Um, sometimes it's a crisis that's outside of your organization that there's no awareness inside, so how are you going to deal with that? So it's kind of understanding what the temperature is of the crisis first and then understanding how to respond. You know, best practices, it's kind of hard. I had a tough time thinking 
this through. You, you, I thought United Airlines did a horrible job in terms of responding. Um, but I was just trying to think, you know, best practices and crisis communications are the crisis you never hear about. Fair enough. And nice. so, Good you know, point. one of the, um, uh, I was uh, privileged enough to be on the PR Awards uh, Committee, uh, Selection Committee, and uh, ExxonMobil uh, Exxon had uh, talked about a crisis that they had during the Houston um, uh, flooding in Houston. And they talked about you know what was happening to uh, some of their dikes, what was what was happening to some of their employees, and I don't remember anything about that, right? So mm -hmm. we're in Houston, Texas, mm -hmm. you know, major oil city in the world, and yet I don't hear anything about that. I heard about other oil companies, but I didn't hear about Exxon. So apparently, whatever they did was really smart, and really mm -hmm. they, they were able to contain it. So oftentimes there are crises that are averted because PR people are smart. They're, they have the right advice and counsel. They're really, really quick to respond. They're able to, you know, measure how they're able to, to respond and keep their audiences in sync. And you don't hear about them. So I don't know if that's the greatest answer, but you know, I'm sure there are t tons of crises we don't know about that were handled brilliantly. Actually, that is a very good answer. You know, dare I say, I think anyone listening to this podcast is probably going to have to listen to it twice, realizing. I'm going to have to go back to the beginning and actually take a lot of notes because you guys gave some really, really great tactical advice, and I do appreciate that. So, Michelle and Janine, I really want to thank both of you so much for joining me today. And, of course, thanks to everyone out there for tuning in today. Hopefully, you'll join us next time on the podcast for more insights from top-level communicators and marketers. So be sure to keep checking back at www.earnedmediarising.com. Until then, this is Gideon Fiddles. I'm Managing Editor of PR Week, wishing you a very good day. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.